Hi Rod, it's been a week since I was in New Zealand, uh, time flies, um, uh, but we had a whole bunch of people in Wellington for some strategy planning and some meetings, but also coincided with the 10th anniversary of the IPO when uh, Zero did its initial public offering on the New Zealand Stock Exchange. Any, any observations 10 years down the line about that? Hey, hey Gary, it was great to see you last week and all of the UK team that came across. You know, for um, for those listening out there, we had our first what we call uh, Zero Week, where we um, bring 100 leaders of the business all down into uh, New Zealand. And we're about 1,700 people. So that seemed like a big deal. And it was kind of sad we couldn't get the whole team there. You know, perhaps we can sort of just ask all our customers to allow us to turn the servers off for a week so we can all travel together. But probably not that likely. But it was really good having everyone there. And um uh, you know, sharing because we spend so much time uh, working over Hangouts and seeing people in little square boxes at at the bottom of the screen. But to 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 get that leadership all together to build those real connections was incredibly valuable. It was, and I think I I made the uh, the remark that um, there's no there's no replacement for face to face engagement, and and we are massive users of Google Hangouts um, as a productivity tool, which is cool. Um, but I think I quipped that we should uh, perhaps hang out less and hang out more because there's no there's no replacement for just being in the same room as as your work colleagues. Sometimes it was it was great. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, it was a really special week last week as well. We had um, a bunch of staff that have been with Zero for ten years now. So as as is our growing tradition, um, we had our ten year lunch. So that was a fairly hilarious uh, few hours reminiscing back to those very uh, very early days of the business, you know, four people in a small apartment. And, um, of course, over the last week, being 10 years since our IPO, we talked a lot about, um, you know, what those early days were like and why did we IPO our business so early. So, you know, the main, the main kind of reason was the last business I had, I had an email archiving company called Aftermail. And um, when we sold that, they gave us the capital uh, to do zero. But the when we um, when we did aftermail, we had about twenty five staff, and everyone was doing four or five jobs. When we started looking at doing small business accounting software and building a global platform, you know, we figured we needed about fifty people. By the time you have ten developers, ten testers, you have some salespeople, then you might need some HR people and uh, some marketers. You need to build a customer care team. It quickly added up to about fifty people. And that was around half a million dollars of salaries a month. And we figured we need probably three years worth of capital so we could build the product, get our first customers. So that, you know, we sort of estimated around $15 million. And back at those days in New Zealand, probably the biggest venture capital deal was two or three million. Um, and, you know, asking for 15 really just wasn't going to happen. We probably could have raised 15 million on the US West Coast. But then we would have had a valuation, say, of 25, and VCs would have owned, you know, probably more than half the business, and it would have been for sale quite quickly. So what we did was um, sort of quite rare. We were one of the first tech companies to do it, but we told a big story. We said, look, we got some great people. Um, We had lots of prior business experience. Here's a really good idea. Um, give us 15 million worth of capital. It is risky, but it'll, but it'll, you know, it will give us the chance to build something which is uh, quite significant. So um, we listed actually within our first year of starting, and we had 
around 100 customers. When we started doing the kind of early road shows, we probably had 20 or 30. And our promise was, um, you know, we'd have 100 customers by the IPO. And then our uh, prospectus document, our goal for the first year was around uh, 1,200 customers. And, you know, back in those early days, I remember, you know, we'd get sort of, when we got one customer per day, that was pretty exciting. And, um, you know, one one day we got three, three in a day, and that was huge. Uh, but yeah, it was pretty pretty interesting times, and um, we did actually manage to float the company within that first year. We raised our 15 million. We did it on a 55 million dollar valuation, uh, which meant we gave away about 27 percent of the company. So it was still very tightly held. Um, and then um, uh, we've really been doing a startup in the public eye uh, for the last 10 years. And you know, as as we've talked about before. Um, over the last few months, passing that million customer milestone just seems like such a long, long way from all of that early investment back in the early days. Yeah, I remember, um, I think the first time I heard of Zero. So 10 years ago, I was in between roles. So I had just left my managing director job at Pegasus, who are a PC accounting software business where I'd been for a few years and was just about to join Microsoft because I, uh, A, I'd always um had Microsoft on my kind of career bucket list always um we kind of grew up in the Microsoft world and thought that if the cloud and enterprise and accounting was going to happen anywhere it might well happen at Microsoft and so I was about to jump into Microsoft just as you were doing the IPO in New Zealand and I think I first heard of Zero in 2008 up in the UK um and and what was remarkable about that was I think it's the first time um I was aware of uh, like a New Zealand software company um, achieving anything like global scale. And it was very early, obviously, even like in the first year after the IPO. Um, but what was obvious uh, to me in 2008 when I was at Microsoft kind of looking looking in from the outside was the, the maturity of even things like brand, vision, uh, the, the tone of voice, the, the kind of the voice of the business was was very contemporary for that time, and very different from established enterprise software businesses. And and so I think I kind of marked your card while I was at Microsoft, thinking that's really interesting little Kiwi business, um, and, and 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 kept an eye on it. And and obviously it, it's grown since. And I think I I jumped out of Microsoft eight years ago to get on board in the UK. And so it's been an incredible time when you think that 10 years ago, um, Zero had 100 customers, and most of them were probably related to you uh, or neighbors. Mm. <laughs> and and just a few months back, we uh, passed by the million subscriber mark, which in a decade is incredible. And it just speaks to the, the, the economics of building a business now in this internet age and the importance of having a vision and 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 clarity of where you want to go and how you want to do it and and actually regardless of where you are um if you tick those boxes and you have perseverance and 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 and, and great people then you can achieve something pretty significant and so it, it was great to get together last week and and reflect on some of that but increasingly i think we see the way it's all going in the next few years is quite different to perhaps the last 10 but it has been an incredible um period to be involved with zero and and i'm really excited about some of the stuff i saw last week the team showed us on some of the machine learning that we're now uh, embedding into the product and i think that's going to architect quite a different experience for people in the next decade but uh yeah exciting times 
Yeah, I think one of the you – know, I'm really pleased you mentioned that about the business looking pretty sophisticated. So one of the things about Zero is it was my third or fourth business. So so Zero I started when I was 40. And, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, think that startups are all uh, done by people that, you know, are – in their 20s. But I think in business software, having, you know, years of writing other business software of working for Ernst & Young, doing software implementation, you, you actually have a huge amount of experience. And I think what's been really cool and, and why I really like doing Zero as a public company is it gives you the resources to execute really big strategy. So the, the so we did raise 15 million in our um, IPO, but then we were able to use strategic placements to raise quite a lot of capital over our lifetime. So, you know, we've raised, um, you know, well over $400 million, well over 200 million pounds. And um, so we've always been really well resourced, which has allowed us to um, really implement strategy and do things. So this next generation of accounting where we move towards code free using um, AI, uh, machine learning, all of those great things is super exciting because we have the resources to do that. And I think, you know, what we've demonstrated over 10 years is having the patience to build the um, that core kind of systems of record, that global platform. So you have the data. And now we're in this incredibly exciting period where we get to kind of um, redefine uh, how uh, um, accounting works for the next generation of businesses. I was reading uh, the uh, Mary Meeker Internet Trends uh, report that came out last week. Um, and so Mary Meeker is an analyst and uh, partner at Kleiner Perkins, who are probably the biggest um, VC firm um, in tech, um, if not the biggest, one of the biggest. They've been around for forever and kind of basically built Silicon Valley um, over the last 40 years. But Mary Meeker publishes an annual report. Um, called Internet Trends, and it runs to something like two or three hundred slides that she delivers at, at whatever event she happens to be at every year. Um, and she was talking about how, if you look at the last decade or even just the last five years, um, the growth um, that we've seen in the, some of the largest businesses in the world. So the top five largest companies in the world are now technology companies. And something like 40% of the top 20 companies in the world are technology companies. And even as recently as five years ago, that wasn't the case. And she then breaks down, if you look at Apple or Amazon or Google, they're no longer known for what they started off as. I mean, so Google was the search engine, Amazon sold books. Apple made PCs and they've managed to diversify and, and, um, I guess in recent years, not so much with Apple, but have all been very strong founder led organizations over the last 20 years and have been able to do that founder thing of seeing round corners and seeing where it's going next. And I think that if you're building a business, and um, you then bring in VC money or you kind of dilute down the original founder vision, um, then I think you lose some of that ability to see around the corner, to see what the next big things are. And if things like Amazon and, and Jeff Bezos or anything to go by, that's a hell of a different business from selling books 20-odd years ago. And, and, and I don't think Amazon would be the business that it is or Google or Apple or anything. If it wasn't for that, that persistent vision from, from the leadership and, and, and being able to see where it's going next. Otherwise, you just as kind of once, once a single generation opportunistic business that, that happened to see an opportunity to build something and, and didn't have a follow up plan once they'd done that. And so that's what makes it so exciting, um, to be in this industry, but to be in this industry right now is the ability to kind of write the rule book as we go. So 
Yeah, fun times. Yeah, so much. Hey, uh, other big exciting thing. Obviously, we had the annual Apple Worldwide Developers Conference, WWDC. I do find that I'm getting a little bit less interested in these. You know, I, I kind of love my phone. So I didn't didn't wake up at 5 o'clock to watch it, but I did start watching the stream, you know, after I did wake up. Uh, but there were a few kind of interesting things. What were your, what were your big takeaways, Gary? Um, so I was really interested in... Um, so they had six announcements. I think one of them was Apple TV, which is pretty uh, pointless. Obviously, a new version of Mac OS, Mac OS um, High Sierra. Um, I, I know you've got some opinions on that, so we'll come back to that one. Uh, iOS 11 looks like it's just maturing um, incredibly quickly. And the new kind of iPad Pro form factor and, and, and this whole thing about the future of mobile productivity no longer being a conventional laptop. And then obviously the, the iMac Pro. Uh, and a couple of other things on on the watch, but I, so for me, the iMac Pro I think was really interesting. Um, and you know, so so I know that your view is that that all of the innovation seems to be going into iOS and not into macOS, and that therefore the implication for that is that there's possibly well, are we coming to the end of Mac macOS in terms of a, of a viable platform? But that then is contradicted by. Um, the investment in the iMac Pro, and obviously they have some some new Mac Pro stuff coming down the line. And so, I, I, what, what's your take? I, I thought it was interesting. I thought iOS 11 looked amazing, but I know you have some thoughts about um, the lack of innovation, at least apparent lack of innovation in macOS. Yeah, so we, and this is kind of amazing when you think about the resources that we have, and we sort of bleed every software. Um, engineer and you know think we you know we'd love to have twice as many you look at sort of our resources compared to the massive resources that apple has has available and the massive amount of cash what seems to have happened and they've sort of said this over the last few years is they keep taking people off mac os to move it on to ios and i think that's just a straight volume game obviously they sell a lot of phones they sell sell a huge amount of ipads and um uh, yet they're maintaining kind of two Operating systems descended from the same tree, but um, but but with iOS, it's you know it's an instant-on operating system. It's far more controlled. It's not like the the Wild West. We can do anything on it. It is a much more simplified and constrained experience. So you know, I was watching the mobile phone parts of iOS, and it was like, oh yeah, interesting. That'll be nice, but nothing really game-changing. But then when they went on to demo the iPad version. You know, now doing drag and drop, um, the multi-window support. So you start asking yourself, wow, um, you know, with the comparing with the lack of really new customer-facing stuff that was in Mac OS, and you can just tell there wasn't a huge amount of engineering time put into that, and they pretty much said that themselves, compared to the, you know, all of that windowing, things you expect from a sophisticated operating system now in the iPad version of iOS, it seemed pretty clear to me that, we can't be too far away from having a, you know, always on um, basically a very large desktop screen, probably with touch where, um, you know, you just turn it on. Um, and for them, it must be compelling because they've got all, um, you know, if they can spend their development resource on 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 one operating system, that's obviously going to drive margin, which Apple is, is very, very good at. The only thing's really missing is, um, you know, proper mouse support. Um, and they haven't, um, I was kind of disappointed they didn't have the multi-user thing kind of worked out yet either. But you add those two things, and they're pretty much there. 
you know, for 99% of users around the world, you know, they, they'd be pretty happy with a with a big screen iOS experience. I think you're right. And I've listened to a couple of um, podcasts on WWDC and um, I've read a couple of reviews. And I think my take from reading and kind of and uh, watching the, the 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 presentations is that Apple is now um, is is obviously a multi platform business. So you've got mobile and iOS and the the whole kind of UX and and the way that that operates is very different from a conventional desktop experience. Uh, you've got the iPad, which when you think the iPad, when was that? That's seven years ago, so May twenty ten. And remember the, the reaction to the iPad when it first came out was, well, it's just like a big iPhone. Um, and that I think speaks to our lack of sophistication of really understanding different use cases for new form factors. Did you look like a big touch device? But in the seven years since the iPad was launched, whilst actually it's a slate and it kind of looks the same as it did seven years ago, albeit significantly more powerful and thinner and, 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 um, uh, high res screens and things. Actually, the iPad hasn't fundamentally changed in its appearance in seven years, but iOS has changed considerably and it's matured to the point where I think you do now have this viable, almost 100% viable alternative to a, to a PC for somebody sitting at a desk, uh, using productivity apps. And, and actually for some things you could argue that an iPad is, is more suitable, certainly more portable when it's, you've got mobile internet and things like that. But then you've got, the specialist uses that I still think that iOS will um, will will fail to keep up with. Um, so designers, um, high end video production, three D rendering, anything significantly more sophisticated in, in a creative sense. So, uh, so I think it, I think for me it breaks down to mobile as a platform. Absolutely for iOS, you've got an increasing debate that says that you don't need. A PC and a conventional kind of clamshell notebook design with macOS to do productivity. You could actually do that better on, on, on an iPad. And I think that category will flip, but I don't think it means the end of the Mac. I think you've then got this other third category, which is people that are in a studio. So whether it's a design studio or a video studio or some other kind of creative studio, they're still going to need, um, a very high-end performance. They're going to need huge screens. They might want multiple screens. They might want the fine granularity of a touchpad or a mouse and and and, and like granular control of a, of a kind of hundred key keyboard. And so I think what we've got is that productivity slot in the middle. Absolutely, you could argue in a couple of years you won't be buying a MacBook. You'll just go for an iPad if you're a productivity desk worker. Um, but I think. Um, rather than that meaning the end of the Mac, I think that studio category with the pro uh, apps and the pro users is, I think, here for quite a long time because I don't see iOS getting to that level yet. It's a big gulf in productivity to, to studio work. Yeah, no, so, so, so I completely agree because still you have to use Mac OS to build iOS applications. A really clear signal will be once they have um, iOS developer tools on iOS, then hey, then the end, then the end may be nigh. Um, but I think what we will see exactly as we're starting to see now with this, um, uh, the new space gray, you know, five thousand dollar iMac, is that 
um, the iMac and those tools become much more workstationy. But there's a few kind of interesting clues. Remember, if you're running iOS, you're all on Apple hardware, and the investment they've been making in in, in their chips and and all those things mean they own much more of the value chain and and a and a much more high margin. You know, there's no moving parts or and those sort of things. And also, if you look back at their productivity tools, the iWork suite and the iLife suite, photos and things. Remember. Three or four years ago, they basically broke the old versions, and then um, the iOS versions came out. And they then um, uh, then what they did was um, give us really basic versions built on that iOS code base, and then they started adding the features back. And there hasn't been a lot of um, investment in their um, in their productivity tools and their iLife tools. Those all seem to be on iOS. So I think. Yes, there will always be a Mac OS market for those creators, but it'll be sort of more high-end workstation products, And um, but that won't be core sort of money. It is for the creator's market. They will make much, much more money by having an iOS version and an iMac form factor where those are incredibly high-margin devices. So I do think we will see both. But the, the frustration thing is... Um, you know, Apple is very much this kind of vertically integrated uh, ecosystem, but um, we're starting to see now, I think, especially with uh, in the enterprise space, where they haven't been investing in enterprise class productivity tools. So most of my apps, even on iOS now, are the Google suite because I need to, you know, talk to Gmail and some uh, people will talk to uh, Exchange servers and the large enterprise. The Apple products, really, most business users I see aren't using those productivity tools. So you end up, if you're in the Apple ecosystem, with experiences that aren't as good as if you're fully in as a consumer. So I think that's an unresolved thing. And it also came clear with the new HomePod, which was a you know walled garden music service, um, which um, was kind of was, which was really interesting. You can understand all the energy going on there that they needed to be there. But because Apple hasn't had that massive investment in their data back end and the years that Google have had to know about all of your data, you don't have a very good intelligent assistant experience with Siri yet compared to what's happening with uh, Echo and Google Home. And also that very expensive speaker is, um, is locked up with an Apple Music subscription. So it's interesting with... Um, we're at this really big tension between Apple as beautiful hardware experience, the base software being quite good, but they haven't invested heavily enough in enterprise software. And you know, I would have thought they would have done iMessage over Android. Other, you know, you're seeing messaging now bleeding towards WhatsApp because of that cross-platform. There are so many more people on Android now. So I just wonder if they got their strategy right. What, what are your thoughts on that? I think uh, I haven't used the. Um Mac OS productivity apps for years now. Um, and, and you could easily configure the mail app and the calendar app to work with Google or, or Office 365 or whichever other backend, um, productivity suites you're using. But it feels like the old world of software. Um, it feels like a function of Apple's desire to, to maintain that vertical, tight vertical integration. They don't want to give up that productivity element. Um, they don't want to cede that to, um, anyone else. And it's almost like they're trying to lock you back into the OS 
And so what is that? I mean, if you if you look at the mail app or calendar, they're they're kind of like almost um I'll be generous and say ten year old uh interface design um examples, possibly even older than that. I mean we're we're talking about um, the concept of a mail app that it's a slightly um more more functional version of Microsoft Outlook from twenty years ago. I mean it's not really moved on and it doesn't have the kind of dynamic flexibility or or some of the new UX conventions you'll see in things like Google Inbox. Um and 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 it is surprising that they haven't broken away from that older paradigm yet. They they could easily build on iCloud a really rich and sophisticated set of of, of productivity products um, that embody um, and, and can challenge what you can do on, on Google or or Microsoft's productivity stack. But they haven't done so. And and not only that, if you look at the relative lack of innovation that you've seen in things like mail and calendar compared with the innovation that you see in other consumer apps. So you could argue that the Photos app, um, the kind of new replacement for iPhoto is significantly cleverer, cleverer and it has kind of machine learning, facial recognition and all the kind of contemporary things you'd expect from a photo app uh, platform. Um, the things you can do with GarageBand and uh, Logic and Final Cut. So they're absolutely spending money on innovation in their kind of product, their Creative productivity platforms, but almost zero on um, on on their old kind of desktop apps, and the very fact that they're still ru- local runtime desktop apps is is kind of it just feels anachronistic in twenty seventeen. Um, can't can't really work it out. Yeah, and so you kind of left with this compromised experience. So you know, I've I've managed I've moved from Apple Music to Spotify. I love the freedom of that. Um, so that's broken the iTunes relationship. I haven't quite got to photos yet, but the main reason is that, you know, and this is what kind of blows me away as well. Sort of Google hasn't thought, okay, give me a guide that shows me how photos work on an iPhone, how I how I move my iPhoto uh, from iPhoto to uh, to Google Photos. I mean, I do find Google fo- Photos slightly creepy in that you know that it's um, uh, it knows everywhere you've been with whom. And uh, they also are cataloging once you put your face in and those sort of things, and they know it's you. Uh, some friends were telling me that uh, you get asked a question, do you want to um, allow yourself to be tagged in other people's photos? So, you know, that sort of database that they have is actually kind of frightening, but the usability of it looks looks fantastic. It's just that Google haven't done that user experience to show step-by-step guide and what the end experience will allow you to make that transition. But someone would write that over the next year or so. It would be fantastic if there was a server-to-server conversion service, and I'd probably use that straight away. But I think what you do now is you have to try to download all of your photos from iCloud into iPhoto or into um, onto your local desktop and then use the Google uploader, which may take, you know, like a whole week to run those things through. So I think it's still too hard, but you can imagine how that could be solved quite quickly. But still, you know, there isn't a there isn't really an Android iPad thing that's got really popular. And, um, you know, I still want a really nice big desktop and I don't really want to go back to Windows. So I think um, where I've got to is I'm kind of resigned that it's, you know, it's it's kind of nice Apple hardware with some nice web-based applications, my productivity ones from Google. And, um, you know, there'll be still a few jarring experiences, but no one solved the problem. There's no no one no-brainer solution which works for all people, which is crazy now 
you know, 30 years into enterprise IT. It's, yeah, and I think actually your comment there about the whole kind of creepiness of some services reminded me of the other interesting thing at WWDC, which was the uh, the, the kind of tracking management that they're building into the next version of Safari on High Sierra on the Mac in, in, in short form, uh, the ability um, to control or block trackers when you visit a website and when you the annoying thing is you're in the market for a new speaker um and you go and search a couple of websites for a new speaker and then wherever you go for the rest of that kind of browsing session or longer other websites you'll see banner ads trying to sell you speakers which is really creepy actually it's a bit like i was listening to um it was either Accidental Tech Podcast or or John Gruber's talk show this week and, and the equivalent of that kind of advertising tracking in a browser. And we're generally we just allow it to happen is like walking into um walking into an electrical department store and looking at hi-fis and looking at TVs and then walking into another one. And the minute you walk in, the guy from the TV department comes up and immediately says, Oh, you're looking for a you're looking for a 60-inch um OLED screen and, and here's what we have. And that that would be weird if it happened in real life, but we allow that to happen in browsers. And the work that they're doing in the next version of Safari to try and circumvent and effectively block um, that tracking uh, um, behavior that, that so many so many businesses are actually using, and I think that also is connected up with one of the fundamental differences between Apple and Google is that Apple have this real strong line on, on privacy, um, and whether it's the differential privacy. Um, um, kind of uh, methodologies they're using. To, they're storing your data as your data. They they couldn't actually look at your data even if they wanted to because of the way the algorithms and, and their cloud storage operate. Um, and the, the the kind of secure chip they have in the iPhones and everything else. And that's very different to that very open uh, landscape from privacy that that Google have employed since they launched certainly since they launched things like Gmail. And obviously on the photos right now. So I think that's an interesting thing that we'll see how that plays out um, between uh, Apple and Google and those big guys. If Apple are certainly behind on innovation on productivity apps, I think they are taking an admirable and, and, and advanced view on protecting privacy and not compromising user experience and, and not compromising your 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 relationship with, with Apple because of um, sharing your data and, and their ability to try and monetize that, and they're, they're really clear that they don't want to do that. Um, but I think yeah, so I actually, I actually, I actually see that quite differently. I reckon that was all about Facebook and all about Google. So while um, they, yes, they're putting those tracking, those anti-tracking things into Safari, that's to block Facebook and Google's business model. Because the other big thing we didn't talk about, which was kind of stunning, is the AR and VR. And remember, I was up at the um, the Facebook F8 conference, which was all about Facebook camera. And what I sensed was that um, Apple now has really woken up that these larger, their, their new large competitors, Google and now Facebook, who have appeared on the scene very, very quickly, are actually grabbing some technical leadership. You know, Facebook is is um, you know making a big deal of the camera platform because of the advertising that comes through it. And uh, so, you know, I think that that the the tracking the the tracking technology and the the VR and AR is incredibly interesting. So, so that's also quite a quite going to be quite funny watching that play out because um, what we've seen is um, Facebook is doing that in a cross-platform way, but uh, the advantage that Apple has is they have 
uh, access right down to Metal 2, the, um, uh, you know, being able to direct draw on screen so they can provide fantastic performance. And I thought their marketing message around um, they bring all of these consumers to AR and VR very, very quickly is super interesting, but they don't have the advertising network that Facebook has and Google have where it will be where the monetization comes from. So what's great, I think, is that um, competition drives so much innovation that, um, you know, it's all game on with, you know, with all the sort of four or five horsemen at the moment, isn't it? It is. And I, I loved um, the demo. So they had a, a John Knoll from Industrial Light and Magic. Um, and John Knoll, I think, was one of the guys that basically built Photoshop way back a long time ago. And he's now a senior effects guy, and pretty famous at Industrial Light and Magic on movies and things. And he came on and, did a, and oversaw a demo of their new... Um, augmented reality VR framework. And, and I think it was, I think it was Craig Federici, who's, um, one of the senior guys at Apple said that, um, if, if you actually think about you're, you're building new VR apps and, and AR apps. And the one they demonstrated was like a kind of Star Wars scene generator, which, um, and the use case for that is people building kind of movies and scenes for movies. And actually, for for so long, they've been building special effects for cinema and for video and for entertainment and games in a 2D environment. Um, and actually, you've now got an iMac that's capable of powering this workspace for this person to go in and construct a 3D environment for a game or for a movie. And and it's kind of like um, Adobe PageMaker um, um, or Photoshop 25 years ago. You're giving this professional creative person a tool and a kind of graphical UI. And of course, if you're building VR experiences, then you're not going to do that in a 2D environment. You're going to do it in a 3D environment. And so this kind of 3D uh, augmented reality or virtual reality toolkit that Apple are building, um, on the surface of it, I think, well, that's kind of pretty predictable because everybody's moving into that. But it's almost like the new desktop environment for this new world of VR apps yeah. that we're building. And I thought that's when the penny dropped for me is that this this is like PageMaker 30 years ago. You're giving these creative people a 3D environment to build things in. And it's very logical that you would do that if you think about it that way. Anyway, so I think it was actually a load of stuff um, really interesting, and we could probably talk for another hour, um, but we should probably knock it on the head because we're over the time we had scheduled. Very good. No, super exciting. And after all that, I just can't wait to buy my Space Gray iMac. So um, they've they've absolutely got me with all the cool stuff they're doing and uh, can't wait. I think it's uh, December those come out, so it's a long time. Yeah, but I'm sure you'll – um, you, you could just spray paint the one you have at the moment. Actually, yeah, yeah, for three thousand dollars, you could get a carbon wrap or something, couldn't you? <laughs> All right, <man. laughs> very good. good. Have a good week, Gary. Thank Thanks, you. everybody. See ya.